Live from tape, pre-recorded at our studios in Austin, Texas, and Portland, Oregon, it's syndicated with Leslie and Ben. Hey everyone, it's Syndicated with Leslie and Ben. I'm the Ben of that. And I'm the Leslie. This is a twice-monthly podcast about television, genre, and storytelling in which we watch an episode of a show and explore the history of television one episode at a time. And Leslie, my friend, what show are we watching today? Today we are going to be watching the movie central show Slings and Arrows. And today we are joined by Peter Volfrank of the These Days Are Ours podcast, a show about happy days. Peter, Hello. Hello! Happy to be here. Happy to be here for the second time, folks, a little behind-the-scenes peek. Uh, we, we goofed on the last one, and we, and we lost it. Uh, so this is our second time talking about Slings and Arrows, so if we sound a little overly familiar about the program, it's because we've watched it twice now. Uh, although we have found someone who is overly, overly familiar with the show, uh, because we've brought in our expert Peter to talk about this wonderful show about Shakespeare. Yes, uh, Slings and Arrows has been one of my favorite shows since high school. It's a It's a big comfort watch for me. I, I love it very much. Yeah, it seems like it has that vibe. Um, feels like, well, well, I guess we'll get into it, but it feels like the stakes are never really the end of the world. It feels very comforting. Um, just small theatrical drama. Yes. Who doesn't love that? Uh, now, Peter, you do a podcast on Happy Days, uh, so I've, I've really got to ask right off the bat, since we're talking about television and we're talking about comedies, especially this season, uh, why Happy Days? Happy Days is interesting to me because... It's a show it's a show about people's perception of the 1950s and it's not really so much about the 1950s itself. Uh, and it's also a show that gets less and less tethered to reality as time goes on. Like there you know, I, I probably the thing that everyone knows about Happy Days is the shark jump. So, it, which, yeah, that that's a good summation of it. It, it started out as this fairly low-key comedy about a family in the 1950s, and then over time, that kind of got... It, it got progressively more unhinged and progressively less interested in being a show about its actual time period. Totally. And it's, uh, of course, it's... it's uh its place in the timeline of uh, American television kind of makes it a very formative American sitcom as it is now uh, some 50-ish years old. Yes. Um, 45-ish, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and obviously, you know, you, you can very much see where, where, where everything that came after it stems. Um, uh, well, obviously, we're going to be talking about a show with a very different humor style. Um, this is a this is a dry one. Uh, that's not a complaint. Obviously, I do I do love some dry comedy. So let's launch into Slings and Arrows. If you're just now tuning in, Slings and Arrows ran for three seasons on the Canadian airwaves. In this classic BBC, <clears throat> in classic BBC CBC fashion, that means there were only 18 episodes. Each season of the show focuses on the staging of a specific play as part of the fictional New Burbage Shakespeare Company's theatrical season. And folks. Uh, fucking 10 or 11 months into this pandemic, I miss the theater so goddamn bad. 
it is among, it's on the long list of things that I miss for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I miss movie theaters, obviously, but I got to miss plays. Yeah. I can watch the movies at home. I can't watch the plays. I mean, I guess I can. There's streamed versions. It's not still. the same. Yeah. Not the same. Well, there's also like bootlegs, which I would never, uh, which I would never advise anyone to watch. Obviously, you shouldn't watch illegal recordings of theater, of the, of theatrical no, of performances. Never do that. Never, mm. ever go onto YouTube and look up bootlegs of shows. Don't do that. And if you do, use a VPN, but you shouldn't. Yes. Uh, you can pirate our stuff. It's all free. Um, uh, no, I, I, I do. No, I miss, I miss the atmosphere of going in there. And, you know, look, when the lights dim, that is a special moment. Um, I, like, I like when they, you know, when they put on music, it's time to light the lights. Uh, and yeah. They get ready for that Muppet show t- tonight. Mm-hmm. Hmm. We just need to watch the Muppets. Uh, no, I, I did have plans to go to our local uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival uh, down here in Ashland, Oregon. Um, mm. uh, mm, p- plans in the sense that it like a, truly in a wouldn't wouldn't it be nice stage? Um, mm. Except I actually did really want to go, and I had specific plays picked out, and I was like, Aww. oh, I'll try to get time off for that and everything. And then, uh, whoops, uh oh, pandemic. Yeah, it's fine. I do wonder what they're going to do with those because. Because the, the, the Shakespeare Festival in my area uh, starts in March. Uh-huh. Which means those plays were presumably about ready to launch. Oh, yeah. Well. So I wonder I wonder if they're just going to repeat the season or. I don't know. I guess you'll find what? out. That's a, that's It's kind of sad to think about, like, the amount of labor that went into something that literally doesn't end up airing, so to speak. Well, that happens in television all the time. Yeah, it sure <laughs> does. I guess so. Uh, it is an hour-long comedy about creative differences, the clashes between business and entertainment, and the constraints of both a... Mm. Misread my own note. It's an hour-long comedy about creative differences, the clashes between business and entertainment, and the constraints of both, with a wide ensemble cast of actors, writers, and creatives telling the Bard's greatest tales. The show prominently features uh, Mark McKinney of Kids in the Hall of Fame, who would later feature in Superstore on NBC, and Susan Cohn, uh, whose later writing credits include Mozart in the Jungle. All 18 episodes of the show are the directorial vision of Peter Wellington, whose most recent directorial work can be spotted on Kim's Convenience, another Canadian classic. Uh, last but not least, the show that we're watching today, or the episode rather, is Season 2, Episode 4, Fair is Foul and Foul is Fair, which contains everything from workshops exploring gender and sexuality in Romeo and Juliet, use of special effects in Macbeth, an actual demanding ghost, intimate and accidental love affairs, conflicts in creative design, controversial marketing materials, and of course, the Canadian tax office. Just a great, just a great medley of things to tackle on an episode of of television. Yeah, Yeah, um, that's actually why I chose this episode, because I, I didn't want to choose something that was a lot of setup. I wanted to choose something that like encapsulated a lot of what was going on in the show. You know, because yeah, you you very you very much picked an episode in motion. Yes, and I, like this episode doesn't have it really have ever have I I in retrospect I kind of wish I had chosen an episode that went into more detail about the conflict between uh, uh between uh between Jeffrey Tennant who is our protagonist the who the brilliant but mentally unstable director of the 
artistic director of the festival and Henry Breedlove, who is playing Macbeth in this season. Uh, Henry Breedlove is a very obvious uh, fictionalization of Kenneth Branagh. He is, he's been, he, he's ex- an extremely experienced Shakespearean actor. He's also very egotistical and really loves playing to the audience. Right. What one of the one of the complaints uh, when he's fired summarily at the end of this season, or excuse me, at the end of this episode? Uh, yeah, I guess it would have been better to get get a bit of a glance into the the conflict that they had been having so far. Although I think it's it's pretty evident in the moment that it's purely petty. Uh, folks, for more uh, Kenneth Branagh material, uh, uh, last November the Sneeple did a uh, enormous episode on him uh, for Ezra's birthday. Uh, for whatever, I mean, look. What other reason, possibly? <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, it's good. You, you, you gave us an episode in motion. Uh, the, the, even though I had not had a ton of familiarity, I had watched the pilot a number of years ago and a clip for a Shakespeare class in college um, before that. Uh, even though I had, didn't have a ton of familiarity, I got a pretty good grasp of who... I didn't really know whoever, what everyone's job was um, or, or how they all necessarily fit into that organization, but I knew who had conflict with who. Um, that was very easy to pick up on. And I actually, uh, speaking about the, the the detail of organization, um, uh, Leslie, you and I have obviously, we, we've covered a number of shows already. We've covered uh, uh, Scrubs Better Off Ted and uh, the Larry Sanders show. Uh, all shows with very concrete power structures. Um, you know, there is... Uh, in each of those, usually a case where there's, you know, look, Scrubs has the older mentor doctor in the form of Dr. Cox. Uh, you know, there's an executive producer on the Larry Sanders show. Uh, Better Off Ted has the corporate boss. Uh, this one doesn't feel like it has any of that. Um, yeah. Because a lot of the characters we see, they're all in control of like a different department or a different mm-hmm. aspect of the job, which means no one's like in true control. Yeah, and I think that that's really interesting to see, um, like, the workplace dynamics of a group of people who are all considered the, I guess, the sea level of whatever they're working on. So it, it is interesting because there isn't that aspect of someone needing to follow a supervisor's orders or whatever. It's just a lot of battling hubris that's <laughs> happening. Right. Yeah, the, the conflicts stem from, from well, like I said, the clashes between creativity and business mm. or, or creative versus creative. There, yeah. is not a, there is not a Michael Scott or a Jack from 30 Rock or anything. Sure. Um, yeah. There, Last season. No t- it, the conflict isn't top down. Yeah. Yeah. Last season, there was kind of that. The, anta- mm. the antagonist was, uh, the antagonist was uh, Mark. Uh, the antagonist was Richard's boss, who was secretly plotting to use the who was secretly plotting to take over the festival and turn it into like a a, a chintzy theme park. Yeah, uh, spoilers for a years old season <laughs> of television. This is not a spoiler free podcast necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, she gets ousted, and now. This season is about, it's both about Jeffrey trying to 
trying to I'd say this season is one of the things that this season is about is about trying to find direction. Jeffrey is trying to find find the artistic direction for the festival and Richard is trying to find and Richard is trying to make sure that the festival remains profitable because he's the business director. And in doing so, he ends up high uh at the beginning of the season, he hires an he hires an advertising firm run by the eccentric Sanjay who has some unorthodox ideas about how to appeal to how to attract a new demographic for the festival, which can be seen in this episode. Um, yeah, when we when we first recorded this, I, I mentioned uh, to the both of you that I just presumed the the way that character hold that's the dude who's like watering his plants or whatever at the beginning of that scene. No, he's not. No, he's no, he's pouring tea. But he, he's the, he's the guy who says like you know you need to lose your mind you know embrace your left brain right that's that dude. Yeah. I I just presumed the way he was playing that character, I presumed that was like the millionaire patron owner of the company or whatever, who's just like, you know, we're out here exploring art and, you know, wh- who cares about the bottom line or whatever. Um, it, he had that kind of vibe to me. To find out that that is the dude who was running that extremely terrible marketing campaign that we see uh, glimpses of throughout the episode is, is mm, wonderful. <laughs> I loved the marketing campaign. That was one of my favorite running gags in in this episode. Yeah, the 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 two most notable examples. The, there is a scene where two of them are communicating in an office. The uh, uh, the guy who seems to be the theater manager, perhaps, and the person who seems to be the front end person, um, uh, are having a conversation. You can see like a bunch of the the basically the poster boards. Uh, in the background, and one's just a, a man kneeling over like a hospital bed, <laughs> yeah. just captioned "Our subscribers." Um, and then another is a looks to be a, a pregnant woman in a, a poorly fitting bikini with a rabbit head on that just says "Up yours." Yeah. And now, if I saw either of those, I would not think, "Ah, oh, yes, for theater." No, oh, yes, theater. That's what this is for. It's advertising. Yeah, it's. It's just a great gag. A Which, great you know, gag. I'm sure is yeah. I'm sure is the point. Yeah. That, that that this is this in no way tells me that you are doing Macbeth later this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another great thing about Sanjay, who is a white dude with an Indian name, uh he a, a running gag with him is that he will say an a quote that sounds like pretty and inspiring, like if you want to make beautiful music, you must play the black no- the black and the white notes together. And then he'll reveal that Richard Nixon said that quote. <laughs> yeah. And concerning. Uh the, the the way that this plot line gets resolved is pretty great because it turns out that Sanjay is not a real mar- marketing expert. He is actually a dentist who is lying who 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 just woke up one morning and decided, "Okay, I, I can do I can do whatever I want if I just say it, and then and he ends up getting arrested, and then his marketing campaign for the for the for the festival works. Ah, uh, see, that's what I was about to say. Is like, isn't that what we're all doing in a sense? Aren't we all just kind of faking it? Yeah, in, in one way or another. Yeah. Also, it you know like 
there's something to be said for white dudes failing upwards for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, look, that that explains what we were talking about. That both a uh, that campaign is bad, <laughs> and then b yeah. um, uh, that that he has. He has approached this job with such incredible levels of confidence uh, that it's hard to – the way he talks, it's very much a, you know, d don't question me. I'm on a high, higher artistic plane than you. Right, right. Um, you know, it's no, it's about the shock value means it's working. You know, can't you understand? Yeah. It? You know, that kind of stuff. Oh, you, you feeble-minded business manager or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, but talk, talking about the plot, it's a it's a multifaceted. This is an ensemble show in the truest sense. Um, not just that it contains a ensemble cast, but that it's about ensemble events happening uh, concurrently with each other. Mm -hmm. um, let's see where where do we begin? Um, the the front end person, uh, Peter. You might have to help me out on the names a little bit, uh, as obviously I. I I've only just watched one episode of this program. <clears throat> uh, the front end office uh, person is dealing with uh, a number of cancellations regarding uh, this new marketing campaign uh, that appears uh, intentionally um, crude and aggressive in an attempt to attract the, I guess, what would be a Gen X audience because the show took place 20 years ago. Yes. Uh, um, Anna Conroy, she is the administrative assistant, and she she's generally the more sensible counterweight to she's generally the more sensible counterweight to richard she's very down to earth she's she's a she's somewhat shy but she is very competent and she has a good head on her shoulders and good, yes part of what she's doing this season is dealing with interns who are not entirely competent uh that would be that that one character who ends up doing the line readings yes mm. perhaps Ah, there we go. That makes sense. Uh, so she and Richard are talking about the the present failings of the season that they might be experiencing due to all these cancellations. Um, they they reference some of the antics that are happening uh, in uh, in in this theater company, including the fact that there is a um, upcoming Romeo and Juliet workshop uh, that is being uh, hacked away at by um, arguably a hack. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Uh the director of Romeo and Juliet is Darren Nichols, and he's maybe my favorite character in the entire show. <laughs> he is loud and pretentious and not entirely competent, and I love him so much. I mean, those are the best kind of characters, aren't they? Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, his speech in, my, in this episode is maybe my favorite in the entire show. Uh, he has the uh, Patrick and Sarah, who are playing Romeo and Juliet, respectively, switch roles. For, for the scene and yes. Sarah expresses some she, she expresses some confusion at that and he responds by by telling her the history of uh the of the sapphic Romeo which was a production mm -hmm. in the Victorian era uh starring Charlotte Cushman as Romeo and he basically uh you know he tells her that you know People's reaction back then was made sense because they were Victorians, but she's a modern person and she should know better. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, God, his entire his entire speech is about 
his entire speech about stuff like, you know, um, we, you know, we don't seek to ask questions that we ourselves don't know the answer. This should be readily, uh, readily obvious to anyone with a basic understanding of, you know, all that jazz. Just, oh, the, the pretension just flowing well, off of him. It was the pretension and the irony of the pretension as it's being presented in the context of trying to make like a more woke like mm -hmm. uh, perspective of Romeo and Juliet that was that was particularly funny to me. Yeah, totally. Oh yeah. Um, in, in the in the third season, Darren ends up directing a not very good musical because he because he. He has this, like, realization where he realizes that musicals are the best way to connect to the common, common man because the common man is an idiot. And if you want to make them pay attention, just slather something in sequence and make it tap dance. Oh, wow. Okay. He's right, though. I, I mean... Because <laughs> I love that know, shit. Me too. It's, it's kind of... Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hi, it's me, the common man. I love that shit. That's yeah. fair. That's fair. While these conflicts are happening, uh, we are also having a debate between the director of Macbeth, uh, his actors, and uh, the ghost that is haunting his dreams. Yes. Oh, um, yeah. Yes. Who is uh, effectively ghost directing uh, an adaption of Macbeth from Beyond the Grave. Yes. Uh, Peter, if you had any insights into that as well. Okay. So Jeffrey Tennant is the living director. Oliver Wells is his former mentor and... He, he now he's his he's the only person who can see Oliver's ghost. So uh they have a very complicated relationship. Uh back when Jeffrey was an actor a along with his love interest and on again off again girlfriend Ellen Fanshaw, they were uh they they worked very closely with Oliver when he was directing them and until Oliver and Ellen slept together, which is especially which was especially galling because Oliver is a gay man. Oh, right. Well, good for him. Yeah, and as he <laughs> as he mentions, you know, as he tells Jeffrey, that was entirely about power. He just did it to fuck with Jeffrey. Oh my. Yeah. Mm. And they kind of sort of make peace with each other in season one, or at the very least, they accept that they're kind of stuck together. And now in season two, uh. Jeffrey is directing a production of Macbeth based on the final plans that Oliver was ma making before he died. And as a result, Oliver has this very strong sense of ownership over the play. He has a very strict idea of what he wants to do with it. And Jeffrey just fundamentally disagrees with it. He doesn't like Oliver's version of Macbeth and he wants to create his own. Right, uh, a heightening of the concept of the idea that, like, you know, oh, we got to do it the way they would have wanted. Uh, right. But in this situation, the uh, the they uh, is right behind you. It is literally and can, there. And can judge you uh, if you don't do it that way. Right. Also, I mean, you know, we should all be we should all be so petty <laughs> that even in death, we're like, hey, no, this is the way that I want it done, and I don't trust you. Uh, also, uh, fed up with uh, the way they are being directed, the two actors who are playing Romeo and Juliet uh, seek the advice and counsel of uh, a better acting teacher, um, it, it would seem. Uh, in addition to this, uh, a screenwriter, uh, excuse me, not a screenwriter, I guess a playwright, 
uh, has a bit of meltdown over uh, the way that his uh, lines are being read when he finally gets to see his work performed. And of course, uh, as mentioned, the Canadian tax office is involved uh, with an audit of one of uh, the actresses who uh, uh, inadvertently, well, I guess pretty strongly advertently, uh, ends up uh, sleeping with her accountant brother-in-law. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, Ellen Fanshaw is the actress in question. She is... If Slings and Arrows can be said to be... I've compared Slings and Arrows to the Muppets in the past, and I don't think it's really a one-to-one comparison. It's just a general... Like, you're looking backstage at these people and their conflicts and their personalities, and you're seeing how it affects their performances. But I will say that the character who I do think is most strongly the one-to-one is Ellen Fanshaw, who is 100% Miss Piggy. (laughs) Okay, okay, I can definitely see that. Yeah, I I mean... Yeah, I mean, I guess if you think about it, uh, Jeffrey is basically Kermit, and Darren is basically Gonzo. But I, I think that's pretty much it, as far as one-to-ones go. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely get it, just because there's no um, there, there's no uh, uh, Scandinavian uh, uh, cooking segments or uh, cannons or anything, doesn't mean this does not reek strongly of the Muppets. Um, you know, it, it is about the... Not to overanalyze the Muppets, but unfortunately, Benjamin C. Hamlin is the name. Um, but, you know, Muppets is also about the conflict between, like, business and, and creativity and whatnot. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, and absolutely. It is the story of a frustrated artistic director and his stage manager trying to wrangle a bunch of goofballs mm-hmm. in the form of uh, Kermit and Scooter. 100%. Yeah. yeah, so the similarity is, I could definitely see it. Um. So, adult Canadian Muppets it is. Yeah. <laughs> adult Canadian Muppets. Yeah. Uh, so, Ellen is, she, she's kind of a diva. She, you know, she has a very high opinion of herself and her talent, and she usually has the, she has the skill to back it up. At, yeah. At the same time, when it comes to her personal life and when it comes to the real world, she's a bit awkward, let's say, and... This episode is what makes that the most clear when she, you know, she does very, very badly when it comes to her taxes and she ends up spending most of the episode getting into arguments with her accountant brother-in-law over her taxes and her decision to, and the interesting way she decided to list buying a specific bra on her taxes and then she ends up sleeping with him. And uh, and nine hundred dollars of lipstick. Let's let's not forget. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. You can't forget about that. Um. Uh. By the way, uh, at, at no point did the Canadianness of this come out stronger than during that entire uh, tax scene. Uh, both because uh, obviously it's the what was it Revenue Canada instead of the uh, Internal Revenue Services. Um, yeah. But yeah, also, yeah. Uh, I feel like the accents really came out uh, <laughs> there uh, during what was it. Obviously, I say process, but I heard process. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And then also the... Pr- uh, pr- <laughs> hmm, sorry, folks. The pronunciation of Nazi as Nazi. <laughs> um, where I was just like, oh, that's right. This this happens in a different country, doesn't it? Sure does. Because uh, other than that, I don't think there's anything too strongly Canadian about it. Uh, no, at least not, not in this episode. I'm sure there are in others. Yeah. I, I think part of that 
I think part of that might just be because America and Canada are not that different, depending on where you are. But yeah, there are moments when it is very clear that this takes place in a different country than you or I are from. Yeah. Uh, actually, the, I think the strongest Canadian moment, although it maybe even felt a little more British, uh, it, it, the title sequence of this show, which is absolutely like a very old-fashioned kind of pub setting. Oh, right. Um, you know, as, yeah. as they sing that uh, that little piano tune together, and one of them is, is literally just kind of swinging the beer back and forth, you know, looking, um, looking a little uh, loose. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like, like that, that kind of, that kind of app, American bars aren't like that. I actually was a little bit like when I first started watching this episode and it started out that way, I was like, it's a British show. It's British Canadian. Okay. I get it. Close enough. Yeah. And, and much like a British show, you know, there's only six episodes to a season and there's only three seasons. Unlike right. American shows where you'll have like 26 episodes and 10 seasons. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, Scrubs was our pilot. Yep, and that was that was so many episodes of television. Yes. Um, yeah, Amer- American bars. I guess America doesn't really have community bars in the same way, or at least they're not as popular as yeah. American. No, I'm sorry. America does have community bars. They're just not what's in vogue right now. Yeah. I mean, they're not in vogue right now. Na- uh, now, because well, yeah, nowhere's in vogue right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fine. My Fine. living room is what's in vogue right now. That's about the only place I've been in the last 10 months. Yeah, you and me both, buddy. You and me both. You and me both. Mm. Anyway, the show's good. Back to um, the show. <laughs> uh, no, uh, Peter, everything you, uh, everything you tell us about this show uh, just does make me want to. I want to find out about this, this, this amusement park uh, plot line. I want to find out. Um, I saw some interesting thumbnails for the other episodes when I was surfing through it real quick. Yes. Um, it, it sounds like there is a, you say it's a comfort show of yours. It sounds like there is a, there's a lot to this show. Oh yeah. Um, and it, and it does feel based on the little that I've seen, it does, it does have a very warm quality to it. Yeah. And, uh, something that I, uh, also really like about the show is that I think it's, it's pretty good at casual queer, queer representation. Uh, two recurring characters on the show are Frank and Cyril who are, uh, older actors and who are also a, a gay couple and it's not really dwelled upon, but, you know, it's there. They're there. They're, they appear in every episode, and the fact that they're a couple is just, you know, uh, taken in stride. And, it, and that's neat. And there's also, uh, you know, in this season, Patrick is introduced as... Uh, Patrick initially identifies as gay, but in this episode, he starts a sexual relationship with Sarah, prompted by... They're increasing closeness as they, you know, perform sh- perform Romeo, Romeo and Juliet together. And it's not really super dwelled upon, but it's, but, you know, that, that sort of thing does happen. Sometimes you identify a specific way and then later in life you, or maybe just not necessarily later in life, but, you know, sexuality is a fluid thing. And, and, and then there's also uh, Darren Nichols, who... It's very easy to read him as queer, which I do, and he 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 has, and all uh, as mentioned, Oliver himself is also a gay man, and uh, I would be remiss not to mention that Darren and Jeffrey have this amazing rivalry, which is not super dwelled upon 
in this episode, but throughout the series, uh, Darren and Jeffrey just kind of hate each other. In large part because Jeffrey thinks that Darren is just flat out an idiot, and he's not wrong. And, and honestly, yeah, they're just, they're great. Uh, that being said, in season one, there is a, a moment when the main antagonist of the season uses a transphobic slur. So it's, it, it's not perfect. And I mean, I, I, I don't want to be too hard on it because, as mentioned before, I love the show and maybe I should be harder on it. But at the same time, this was the... This was the two thousand, the early 2000s, and that was a terrible time in so many reasons. And it's not like the show is unique in that. And, and she is an, she she is the antagonist. We are supposed to hate her. So, yeah, I don't know, but I do feel like it's worth mentioning. Sure, everything has its context. Yes. Hmm. What if I pronounced that word correctly? <clears throat> everything has its context. There you go. I, I yeah. dropped off the second T for some reason. Um. Yeah, that's something that was fairly prevalent in early 2000s shows in particular. It was very weird. Like, that was the thing that it was still acceptable and okay to make fun of at the time. Even shows that were pretty revolutionary and really rather good um, and would hold up in um, so many other ways just do not hold up in that particular context. Ugly Betty being a great example of that. Fantastic show, but wow! Yeah. Um, wow, some of the trans takes on that one. Yeah. I'm, I'm also reminded of casual use of the R slur. Like, mm. like uh, the, the movie Drop Dead Gorgeous, which I think is actually late 90s, but even so, like, the, the, there's a scene where it just, it, it just really likes using that movie. I, I like that movie a lot, but wow, does it like using the R slur to an uncomfortable mm. degree. And yeah. uh, more recently, uh, I rewatched the 2005 Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie for reasons that I don't entirely remember, but I did that. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to make you justify it, but come on. Yeah. Well, hey, man. Well, sometimes, I, sometimes I also, it's like that. Okay. I also watched the 70s Willy Wonka movie, so you know. And there's a scene in the 2005 movie where Mike TV uses the Arsler, and that movie is rated PG, like children and families went to see that movie and it just casually drops the word in there and it's like oh oh right 2005 man that year kind of sucked i was having an at-length discussion with some of the people in our discord um over uh specifically the comedy central late night shows uh over the daily show and uh and the colbert report um and and i was i was you know well, we were talking more complicatedly about uh, the politics of those shows um, and kind of the aggressive uh, centrism uh, that sometimes displayed itself. Um, but one of the things that, that kind of came up in my own, I don't think I actually brought it up in the Discord, uh, but one of the things that came up in my own head was that, like, even though they were censored for TV because they aired on Comedy Central, like, the, the bleeped gags did absolutely contain language, like, as late as 2012 or whatever. Uh that would have been horrendous to actually uh, include. Um, like, yeah. Like, uh, like uh, to say everything has its context. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the words that we are we are dancing around uh, have been used with prevalence up until like 2015 or whatever. Yeah. Um, we just, uh, yeah. In, in, in we, very recent we finally, years, thank God, we've cut it When out. we finally collectively said, you know, maybe this isn't cool. Maybe we should yeah. not do that anymore. 
I feel like uh, Colbert particularly did all that because he was playing, you know, because he played a right-wing asshole for so long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, There's like, oh, well, you know, it's cool if they say it and then bleep it as part of the bit. And it's like, hmm, actually, maybe just don't say mm, it at all. Yeah, maybe maybe just don't say it. Maybe yeah. maybe just don't. It's fine. Um, uh, uh, rolling back to the back to the show itself, though. Um, yeah, I want to talk about like the the. We were talking about how the conflict doesn't exist from a top down perspective. That it is not like the 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 employees in trouble with the boss or anything like right, that. Right, 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 right. Yeah. But like a lot of the a lot of the conflicts is creative versus creative. It's it's directors not agreeing with actors. It's um. People not agreeing with their own work, uh, that kind of stuff. I, I just think that's a more interesting approach to maybe not a more interesting, but a, a definitely unusual uh, uh, take on conflict uh, for a sitcom. Yeah. Uh, especially since Leslie and I, you just, <clears throat> excuse me, Leslie, you and I just talked about uh, Better Off Ted, which is absolutely employees are in trouble with the boss. Oh, 1000%. Con- uh, level of conflict. Most of that shows appeal. Yeah. And, and I think in regards to, uh, I think in regards to, you know, conflict between equals, especially within creative fields, I think that's, you know, most art is collaborative. Like, you can't make a movie or a play or a TV show without people working together. Like, stuff like auteur theory tends to emphasize one creative singular voice running the show, but... Even so, you still have to, like, work with actors and usually other writers and writers and stage managers and people working on the lighting and sound. Right. You may, you may be the auteur of the screenplay. Right. But somebody has right. to direct that and ten people have to star in it. Yeah. Um, I, I, we, we, were just, we, we just watched um, we just watched Nightcrawler the other night. Okay. Um, the the Jake Gyllenhaal movie. Yes. Uh, that movie is. I want to say. Oh fuck. Okay, I'm fine. Never mind. <laughs> I pressed a command key uh, intending to open up a new tab in uh, Chrome, and I realized I still had Audacity selected, and I was worried I suddenly <laughs> fucked up my recording somehow. Um, I didn't. It's still chugging along. <clears throat> um. Nightcrawler film 2014. I have a point with this, I promise. Uh, we were watching, um, we were watching Nightcrawler uh, last night, the the twenty fourteen uh, Jake Gyllenhaal movie. That is uh, directed, written by, and casted by the same person. I want to say yes, and then like the editing is by like his brother, um, and stuff like that. And I was thinking for a moment, like, oh, this is probably the closest to auteur we get in the modern day. Uh, just because that's that's one person handling so many parts of it, um, but even so, like you know, that is that is enhanced by every single actors in that performance. Um, that's you know, so someone else did the music, all that. Like there is no obviously, I, I don't need to explain this to you too, but there is no true auteur theory. Right. Um, all art is collaborative. Yeah, I, even like novels are like influenced by other people. And, and you have like editors to help writers make them better. Mm-hmm. And and hey, as as it goes, um, can't judge a book by its cover. Cover designers even have an impact on that. Very true. But yeah, no. So it's interesting. It's interesting to see conflict framed framed in these ways, especially 
Um, you know, some of them are, you know, it's, it, it's two directors, one alive, one dead quarreling over, uh, specific stage directions. Um, it's a director and an actor in conflict. It's two actors, uh, in conflict with their would be director. Um, it's a, a writer in conflict with his own actors and with his own work, uh, where, where that individual who upon hearing his work read out loud for the first time is like questioning the entire nature of his play and, uh, folks, I'm not uh, accomplished or really even published, but boy, I've been there. Yeah, I um, think we all have. Where I'm like, no, that you're not. That's not, not how you're supposed to read it, though, because um, it sounded cooler <laughs> right, in my though. head. Yeah, <laughs> it sounded cooler in my head, and when you, when you pause to say certain lines, it makes it sound not like what I wrote, and maybe what I wrote was bad. And oh no, maybe I'm not good at this. Oh God, the the, the part where he asks the actors to paraphrase. And then he gets mad at them for just saying it in their own words. And, yeah, and, yeah. And they point out that's what paraphrasing is. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, it's just it's, it's interesting to see because there's there's all sorts of um, internal motivations there that, that we are both extremely privy to because I have been in a situation where I've heard my own work read out loud and I've been like, ah, fuck no. Um and also, you know, very minute things like, um, you know, you know, like the conflict between uh, the the directors who are both alive and dead. Uh, one more time on the names, Peter. Sorry, Jeffrey and Oliver. Jeffrey and Oliver. Thank you. You know, it is is a little more nuanced. You know, they're they're quarreling over like, no, you can't do special effects. Trust me, I know this play. You know, back and forth. Those are. Yeah, and it culminates in a big argument where Jeffrey where Oliver accuses Jeffrey of making the play all about him. And Jeffrey says, you're trying to make it all about you. Because, you know, Oliver is a ghost and he's very invested in giving Banquo's ghost a large role. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, what, what I'm thinking is that, like, I, I think, I think uh, the hearing your own work read back at you is a, is a very, very universal feeling. Obviously, the three of us just agreed that we... We've all experienced that, but not even like not even like in a in a written artistic way. Like you know, you ever heard, have had your own words tossed back at you during an argument or anything? Sure, like that? sure. Um, whereas I think like the motivations behind like no, no, he needs to walk upstage for that are a lot more a lot more nebulous and a lot more, especially because we don't see the final play. We see a part of it, but we don't see the final work in the way that we are hearing the final script. Um. It's just, it, it's interesting, but like it, it kind of doesn't matter whether they're quarreling over specific stage directions or they're quarreling over, um, you know, you know do, do we use dry ice or not? Because um, what matters is that they're fighting for reasons past that. It's not just individual choices. It's, it's, am I honoring your work versus do I think you know what you're doing? Right. It's definitely, I wouldn't, like a power struggle isn't the right way to put it exactly, but it's a, it's it's more it's about more than that. It's 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 about the the interpersonal communication and, and what's happening there, which is what makes it so interesting. Totally, um, it's a good show. It's a good yeah. show. It's got a, it's got a nuanced take on conflict that I really appreciate. Uh, it's a good show. It's got a nuanced take on conflict that I really appreciate. It's got a um, I, I really love this ensemble cast. I like how, you know, the stuff we we're talking about with like, uh, you know, they're, they're conflicting as equals. Mm-hmm. Everyone's in it together in different ways. I think it's, uh, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's really strong. 
the uh, the criti- the only criticism that I really had about the show itself was the fact that it is is pretty niche. Like it's it's for a pretty niche audience. Um, it's extremely entertaining if you care at all about theater. Um, but but if you don't, I, I don't know how enjoyable this would be. Uh, but you know what? Also, I'm not Canadian. Maybe that is just a thing that they really really enjoy taking the piss out of in Canada. I don't know. Um, but the interpersonal dynamics and all of that, you know, super specific to this show stuff that we've talked about has all been super on point despite, you know, whatever niche, uh, whatever, what am I looking for here? What's the word I'm looking Okay. Whatever niche industry you find yourself in, I think that the issues themselves are very universally relatable. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's like the challenge of these shows is like, you know, whether your show is about a hospital or the making of essentially the David Letterman show or um, or, or a, a nameless corporate entity that makes, you know, quote unquote products or a paper company sure. or Saturday Night Live or whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. Or, the, or Shakespeare the, Festival. Yeah. They have to make the conflict universal enough. Yeah. At the same time, there's I think there's a lot of power in specificity like you know, trying to be everything to everyone usually means that you're just making something for nothing for no one. And if you just try and make something more specific, more lived in, then you can end up attracting an audience that you didn't even know existed because they can identify with specific aspects of that specific choice. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's a fine line to walk between the broad and the specific. Um, especially when playing to an audience uh, like this. Um, uh, my, my, my only thought now is like, oh, this show would not have been given three seasons and enough time to breathe in the modern yeah. era of uh, rapid yeah. streaming. I don't think so either, but... Um, so cheers to 2002 or whenever. Yes. <laughs> the show a, simpler, a simpler time. A and, simpler time when yes, executives had trust in a show to last long. And, and I will... Uh, I will, I will conclude by saying that Oliver Wells is is played by Stephen Wiemet, who was also the voice of Beetlejuice in the '90s cartoon adaptation of Beetlejuice. I oh, remember yeah. the '90s cartoon. Yeah. I loved that thing. Yeah, uh, Allison Court was the voice of Lydia, and she mm-hmm. was also Jubilee in the '92 X-Men cartoon. I loved that one too. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Leslie, you know we'll have to get around to that eventually, right? We are going to have to discuss that eventually, obviously. Obviously. We'll do a whole season on 90s children's media. I'm here for it, as I was a child in the 90s. As was I. Excited to talk about gargoyles. Um, (laughs) uh, Let's see. I I think that uh, virtually concludes everything I I feel I had to say about about Slings and Arrows. Um, Anything else that anybody wants to pitch in real quick? For before uh, our curtain call? No, I think I'm good. Uh, do you want to do favorite jokes? Should we do favorite? I think I, but I already talked about mine though. I think, well, I think it's, okay. Mine is a toss up, <laughs> I would say, between the running gag of the ad campaign that was hugely disturbing and insulting oh, yes, yes. and uh, just everything going on with the, with the tax situation prior to uh, the sex 
just uh, just the way that she was trying to get everything sorted. Um, I understand that that's like maybe not as funny a gag for some people, but when you live the way that oh, I live, it was extremely relatable, and I, I enjoyed it immensely. So that's going to be mine. Um, I think mine has to be uh, during the Romeo and Juliet workshop. You were working with a very limited uh, conception of heterosexual love, as was I pre Berlin. I botched the I botched the uh, punchline, but just the phrase "as was I pre Berlin." Uh, like it matters to anybody else in that room that this dude went to Germany and fucked once. Like, yes. Uh, cool. Thanks. Thanks for sharing with us, man. Yes. And for me, it's a toss up between the Savic Romeo speech and uh, that's what paraphrasing is. <laughs> no, you're just saying it in your own words. That's what paraphrasing is. Yeah. Yeah. Those are both really good moments. So, yeah, that slings and arrows a. a a very realistic uh, interpretation of, of the conflicts between uh, art and business and art and artists. Um, and also just makes me long to return to the stage, not as an actor, but as somebody who likes watching plays. Uh, Amen to then, that. Uh, nodding quietly uh, at the uh, friend of yours who was on stage. So wear a mask uh, and social distance and stay inside. Please. Yeah, so wear a mask and social dis distance, stay inside, stay at home so we can watch some plays again, please. Consider subscribing to your local theater company anyway, even though they're not doing anything right now. Yeah, if they're gonna be, they're gonna be again. So you know, they're gonna be again, and they're gonna need money for that. <laughs> Hell, uh, here in Portland, uh, our local uh, repertory uh, film theater, uh, the Hollywood, uh, has been doing a like a like kind of a film subscription sort of showing digital showing series, even though people can't go inside that old like it's like a nineteen twenties movie theater. Um. Anyway, find a, find a way to support local art in your area while while they are not actually actively able to perform. I guess that's the moral of the story. Also, don't listen to ghosts. Yes. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Don't listen to ghosts. That's another that one, moral. That, of the one, story. that one's harder to apply on a day to day basis, though. Yeah. I don't. It says you. <laughs> I find it to be hugely valuable advice. All right. Well, folks, next week we're covering uh, the Ghostbusters animated TV show from 1987. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, boy. Lucky. Hey, if we get around to it, you're more than welcome. Uh, folks, I think that concludes our discussion today. Uh, uh, Peter, why don't, uh, why don't you uh, give us your, your social medias and uh, let us know where we can listen to more of your uh, critical media thoughts, as I know you have quite a few. Oh, sure. Uh, I'm Peter Volfranc on Twitter. That's P-E-T-E-R-B-U-L-F-R-A-N-C. I am the co-host of These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast. You can follow us there at Fonzie Podcast. And I'm also, I also read, and with my boyfriend, I co-host a podcast about Marvel's Squadron Supreme characters. We are currently talking about their appearances in, in 80s Defenders, which means that pretty soon we'll be getting to the Mark Grunewald Maxi series, which I am super excited for. And God, we do love that Mark Grunewald. Yeah. And I am also currently, uh, I am also currently extremely behind on the podcast. I recently started Troubleshooters about the career of a comic book prodigy turned mad Roman emperor of Marvel Comics turned, <laughs> uh, turned founder of Valiant and Comics, Jim Shooter. Fucking Jim Shooter, man. He... He ha he's a big personality, not necessarily a pleasant one, but an interesting one. And I like that I get to talk about him regularly now. 
So, yeah. Uh, and you can listen to Troubleshooters on CastBox. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and letting me talk about one of my favorite shows. Of course. Well, thank you, you so much for suggesting it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think uh, Leslie and I are both interested in, in continuing to watch this show. Hooray. Um, I, I, especially because it's so short, because it's only 18 episodes. I, I, yeah, I wanna, it's very digestible. It's yeah, very I want to spend some show. more time with it. Uh, folks, my name is Ben C. Hamlin. Well, yes, it's also my Twitter handle. Folks, my name is Ben Hamlin. You can find me online at Ben C. Hamlin. That is B-E-N-C-H-A-M-L-I-N over on Twitter.com, where I'm always talking about uh, uh, comics and other uh, sorts of nonsense. Right now, I'm doing another Choose Your Own Adventure story. Uh, it's wintry themed. I would highly encourage you to uh, go check out the thread on that. Uh, oh, you can check out my other work, Parascience, uh, an exploration of the supernatural and unquantifiable. Uh, every other Tuesday right here on Infinity Break. A new chapter should be starting soon, although we're presently uh, uh, very deep into our California chapter aboard the Queen Mary. Um, in addition to that, you can check out Comics Invasion and our uh, occasional streams over at twitch.tv forward slash Infinity Break Gaming. Leslie, how about you? Uh, you can find me at Vanetti, V-A-N-E-T-T-I, on Twitter. Um, it's a pretty good time. I highly recommend it, personally. Not biased at all. Just think it's fun. Come be my friend. Leslie's best quality is their Twitter presence. It's very true. And, it's sad, and, it's and also your your uh, unflinching friendship. And also, yeah, you know, like friendship or whatever, but also Twitter. But also you got a good Twitter. Uh, you can check out all of our shows at infinitybreak.net where we're telling stories our own way. Um... You can support the show directly by leaving a five-star review on whatever listening platform you choose to listen to us on. We have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash infinity break. A recently rehauled Patreon, actually. We have uh, updated it with uh, new rewards and new tiers to reflect our modern goals as a company. Um, and we're uh, absolutely going to be tossing stuff uh, up there from uh, that was cut out of our uh, latest two episodes. Uh, from the Better Off Ted with uh, Chris Hadame and uh, this episode that you're listening to right now with Peter. Um... So yeah, patreon.com forward slash infinitybreak, infinitybreak.net, uh, five-star review wherever you can. Just do tell your friends. Uh, folks, we started this show uh, under a bit of rough circumstances. Um, we just, uh, look, no timing in 2020 was perfect, but we started it uh, just before the Portland wildfires started. Uh, and then we, we ran into a number of roadblocks after that. Uh, and I just wanted to apologize because, uh, I, honestly, I should have pushed the show back like about four months. But how was I to predict the Portland wildfires? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I kind of um, feel like we were all just doing our best in 2020 in general to make things work. Whether especially, well, because then the election, those last four months of you know, it, especially. It just, there was just a lot. It was just a lot. So give uh, us so, a break, man. <laughs> yeah, this is coming out in January of 2021. So I think what I'm getting at is we're going to try to be a lot more regular from here on. Um, uh, we, we just launched the show at a bad time, under the wrong star, as the kids say these days. Ah, well, it's a new year. New year, new show. New year, new show. <laughs> new year, new, new us. Year, new show. That's technically the same show from last year. That's the same cast from that previous show we did about a sad horse. Yeah, well, that's but that's what happens when you say new year, new me. It's the same shit. So, so that's what I mean. <laughs> Just same, the same shit. shit twice. Same shit twice. New year, Syndicated. new me. <laughs> Syndicated with Leslie and Ben. The same shit. Same shit twice. Same oh, shit twice. Literally, in this episode's case. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. All, All right. right, folks, uh, that concludes it for Syndicated with Leslie and Ben. Uh, please do join us next time for another uh, another venturing into workplace comedies. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, y'all. See ya.